sorry about that. We have an alarm going off out there and we're trying to figure out what it was. <laughs> but nothing is wrong. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. So um, I invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Uh, we're going to talk about the beginning of the story of Gideon. So we're talking about the, the good part of the story of Gideon. Um, it's in the time of the Judges. The Israelites are being unfaithful and God is delivering them through these leaders who Gideon is one of. And he starts out really strong. And then at the end of our passage today, we'll see the begin of his descent into making mistakes and becoming idolatrous, etc., etc. So that gives you a little bit of, con- uh, a little bit of context anyways. So we'll read 6.33 through 7.18, which is a little long, but it'll give you the story, and it's an interesting story. Um, So, Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 33 through 7.18. Starting in 6.33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abezerites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying out a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many, For me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go with you. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let let all others go every man to his home. 
So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you will speak to our hearts. You will speak through me and speak to these people here today. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased with this time, that our, our hearts would be strengthened in our faith in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you make a difference? Can we, can we as a church, can we make a difference? Think about it. By yourself, you can't stop the virus. You can't fix the sins of hatred and pride that cause racism. You can't stop violence and chaos in the streets. You can't promise your loved ones that they 100% for sure won't get sick. You can't convict, convince your fearful family members that everything's going to be okay. You can't fix the economy. You can't make the jobs come back. So let's ask again, can you make a difference? Can we as a church make a difference? We end up in fear and frustration because there are things going on in our lives that we would like to control. We would like to fix them, but they're too big. We can't fix them. We end up with fear and frustration because in relation to all these huge things going on, we're relatively weak. We aren't big enough, we aren't smart enough, we aren't strong enough. So can we make a difference? Well, I'm going to read a quote. This was from a man named Francis Grimke. He was a former slave who became a Presbyterian pastor. He studied under Charles Hodge, 
He was a pastor of a big church in Philadelphia for over 50 years. So in 1910, he was talking about racial prejudice in his day in 1910, but it applies to all of our situations. He said this, The first thing for the church to do, I say, is to wake up to the fact that it can do something. He said to act like the church has nothing to offer is a disgrace to it and makes the church utterly unworthy of the name that it bears. Now those are strong words. The point is, the church can do something. The church always has something to offer the world in time of trouble. The gospel and its implications speak to every area of life. Whatever the situation it is, whether it be sickness, injustice, violence, chaos, financial difficulties, emotional problems, Christ provides an answer. We are to turn to Christ. And so today, church, through the story of Gideon, God is showing you that you can make a difference because God loves to use weak people of strong faith to build His kingdom. God loves to use weak people of strong faith to build His kingdom. And so we'll start with point number one, which is you should have strong faith. You should have strong faith. As we step into Gideon's world here in Judges, um, the Israelites have been unfaithful. They've turned their backs on Yahweh. They're worshiping Baal and all these other Canaanite gods. And God had warned His people back in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, if you are unfaithful to me, then there will be covenant discipline. They will be disciplined. And part of this discipline would be famine and oppression from enemies. Well, now it's happening. The Israelites have been unfaithful. And so now when they plant their crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and these other peoples of the east, they come in, they take all of their crops. They take them back with them. And whatever's left over, they feed them to their animals. So the Israelites are left with nothing. It's like everything that they work for all year long, just poof, it's gone. Every year. Like live in the year 2020. Every year, boof, boof, it's gone. So this year, in verse 33, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together. They crossed the Jordan. They came into the Israelites' land, and they got ready to do what they do every other year. Take the crops. But this year, something is different. Verse 34, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The Spirit was with Gideon, and so he sounds the trumpet, which is like a, a uh, rallying cry to gather all the tribes together to say, we're going to do something about this Midianite problem. We're going to kick things back out of our land. But see, here's the thing. Gideon calls the people together, but secretly, he's not quite ready to act just yet. He's still a little bit unsure. But just before this, right before all of this happened, Gideon, Gideon, excuse me, Gideon had been told by, told by God, go take down the Canaanite altar that was there in, in their town. And so Gideon goes at night, takes it down. All the people got so angry, they came out and wanted to kill him. And so everybody in the town wants to kill Gideon. Gideon doesn't know what to do. His dad, being a good dad, steps in, Joash is his name, and says, well, if Baal is so strong, why don't you just let the idol Baal punish Gideon? Well, did anything happen to Gideon? No, of course not, because Yahweh is the only true God. Gideon should have known. He should have known God is going to deliver him. He had already done it once before. 
And yet, in verse 36, Gideon says, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm going to lay out the fleece and the wool, and I want it to be dry. Gideon is trying to make sure that God really means what he says. I know you said you would do it, God, but I just need some extra proof. So he puts out the fleece. He asks God to keep the ground dry from the dew, but have the fleece be wet. God is merciful, and he does it to strengthen Gideon. So Gideon asks again in verse 39, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more. And he asks for the opposite this time. He says, let the ground be wet and the fleece be dry. God, being merciful, does it to strengthen Gideon. There's part of us that says, man, come on, Gideon. God came directly to you. God spoke directly to you. God has already delivered you. God has told you that you're going to win. You should know, Gideon. But the real question is, do you know? When you've been on social media for hours, do you know? When the news has got you so upset and angry about violence and injustice, do you know? When your family members are getting sick, do you know? We live on the other side of the cross. Christ has already come. Christ has already defeated Satan. The earth and all that is in it belongs to Christ. In our children's message, Jesus says, All authority on heaven and in earth has been given to me. Christ owns it all. It's His. Sin, death, hell, the grave, suffering, pain, injustice, evil, it's all being run out by Christ's kingdom. He came back to life. He was raised from the dead. He won. So let this be your reminder right now. We don't have to put out fleeces to test and see if God will do what He said. He's told us. He's telling you in His Word right here today. Be confident. Christ has won the victory. You know the end. You know how this thing ends. We should know because God says, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's exactly what He told Gideon. If you go back to verse 15 and 16, in chapter 6, and he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I will be with you. It's God's favorite promise to tell all of his people. He told it to Moses, to Joshua, to Isaiah, to the twelve disciples. He tells it to you. He tells it to me. I will be with you, says Yahweh, the Lord of armies. And that's the promise that you need. So you may not know when it's going to happen. You may not know how it's going to happen. You may not know where it's going to happen. You may not even know what it is that's going to happen at all. But you do know who. Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. You have every reason to have a strong faith. The God of the universe is on your side. He is with you. And yet, in this story, we have a, there's a contrast. We have, you should have strong faith because your God is with you. And yet, God loves to use your weaknesses. God loves to use your weaknesses. This is point number two. So Gideon, he's 
sounded the, sounded the trumpet. The people have come. They gathered together in seven, chapter 7, verse 1. They encamped beside the spring of Harad. The spring, the Harad literally means trembling. So it's just like a little funny, like, ah, they're at the spring of trembling, and then God says, now, let me point out all the people who are trembling, and I'm going to send them home. Um, so God says in verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So we've gone from 32,000 people down to 10,000 people to defeat the Midianites. God says, okay, now you're down to 10,000. Actually, verse 4, the people are still too many. We need even less than 10,000 for God to prove his point. So he takes them down to the water, and God's going to test the people there. They come to the water. Some lay down and drink straight out of the stream. Some gathered up in their hands, where they say they lap like a dog. And typically, well, I guess I can't say typically, but I've heard this passage preached, you know, the vigilant ones are the ones who kneel down to drink while they look for the enemy. Um, as far as the best we can tell from the geography of the places that are mentioned, the enemy is like two or three miles away. So that may or may not be the case. The point of the passage is to say, get the least amount of people as possible. Get the weakest amount of people as possible. Not necessarily get the, the best soldiers. It's the least the least likely way to drink water. I, you know, I heard that when I was a kid, and then I, you know, I was out camping one time and trying to drink out of the stream. I'm like, I'm going to do it, like Gideon's men. So you lean, lean down, and you try to drink out of it, and it's like, I can't even get any water. This is so hard. Take that for what you will. I don't know if that really means anything, but... <laughs> the lappers, we'll call them. The lappers are the least likely way to drink water. And so Yahweh says in verse 7, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And he sends all the others home. Now why would God choose to use 300 lappers? Remember, in verse 2, he says, The people are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. This is God's mercy. He's using this weakness of the 300 lappers to say, I'm not going to let you be prideful this time. I want you to know that you can depend on me and my strength. In other words, as one commentator says, because the tendency of God's people to glorify their own efforts, to trust their proven methods, to credit their own contributions, to think well of their own cleverness, God often makes us utterly helpless so that we are forced to recognize that the glory for victory comes from Him alone. This is God's mercy. And we tend to think, you know, whoever we deem to have the most gifts or the most resources or the best personality, surely they will be the ones that God uses. If you have a big, massive church, you can make a difference. If you have lots of money, you can make a difference. That's not how God looks at things. Del Ralph Davis tells this story. He's a pastor telling a story about another pastor back in the 1800s. And the story is about William McCullough. They called him an ale minister. They called him an ale minister. He was a pastor in Scotland. And they called him an ale minister because when he would get up to preach, 
People in his church would literally get up and leave and go to the local tavern to drink beer because the sermon was going to be so boring. And they knew it was going to be slow and it was going to be boring. And so he was the ale minister that people would get up and leave instead of having to listen to his sermons. But when a revival broke out in Scotland, you want to know where it started? William McCullough's small, boring church with his small, boring sermons. That's who God chose. That's who God wanted to lead. Only a triune God like ours would choose to use someone like this. God loves to use lappers and ale ministers because it demonstrates that it's God's power who brings us success, not our own. Not our own. So we do need to ask a question. If we need to be weak, does this mean we need to walk around like, like I'm weak, I'm so bad, I can't do anything, also God gets the glory? Well, that's not really the weakness that the Bible is talking of. It's not necessarily talking about I feel weak, although we may feel weak. I may not feel needy or sad, although you may feel needy and sad, and I would be able to relate to that. But either way, weakness is the fact that you don't have the resources that you need to get the job done. You don't have the resources that you need to get the job done. It's literally not feasible for you to accomplish so great a task. This is, it's, this is part of the gospel. You don't have to pretend to be perfect. You don't have to pretend to have it all together because you don't have it all together. You don't have the resources that you need to pull it off. And that is the heart of the gospel. You don't have the righteousness that you need, but Christ does. He has it. You do not. You can't save yourself. Christ must save you through His life and death and resurrection. You can't overcome sin on your own. You need the presence of, sp of the Spirit to change you and to mold your heart and to give you the power to overcome your sins. You can't successfully accomplish what God calls you to do on your own. You need His presence to give you strength and guidance and power. And so, oftentimes, I find that, that you get anxious and, and you get worried because, oh, I might mess something up. I might let somebody down. I didn't try hard enough. Uh, this fell through the cracks and I couldn't make it happen. But in reality, the hard truth is this. You will let somebody down because you aren't Jesus. But Jesus gets the glory when you say, I can never be enough to give, give this person everything that they need. I can never be enough. Only Christ can. Only Christ can. And He gets the glory when we say that. And that's a beautiful thing. And so we use our weakness to display God's strength. And so when you hear in point number one, you should have strong faith. If that makes you worried and think, oh no, <laughs> what am I going to do with my weak faith? I understand that. Me too. It may seem like the church is weak, like we can never really make a difference in this hurting world, but that's okay. We're a bunch of lappers and ale ministers, but our God is strong. He is with us. He loves to use weak churches full of weak people to do things in His world. He rejoices to do that. So don't depend on yourself. Don't depend on your own, uh, your own assessment of how useful you are in God's kingdom. Depend on God's strength. He will use your gifts. He will use you. 
Depend on Him who is able to do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. That's our God. So if you have number one, strong faith. Number two, God loves to use your weakness. How do we put these together? God uses your weakness as His strength when you put your faith in Him. Or the short way to say it is, faith plus weakness equals God's strength. Faith plus weakness equals God's strength. Now notice, I didn't say God turns your weakness into strength when you believe in yourself that you can do it. No, I said God turns your weakness into strength through faith in Him because He can do it. And He is with you. And He will provide. And so in verses 9 through 11, we see that God, God in His mercy actually comes to Gideon even though Gideon is still fearful. Look at verse 9. The same night the Lord said to him, that is Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Verse 10. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Notice who comes to who here. God chose Gideon. Gideon has been clothed with the Spirit. Gideon should have been ready to accomplish the task, but God knows his heart. God knows that Gideon is still fearful and trembling, and so God approaches Gideon and says, if you are afraid, I'm going to provide. God chose to use the weak and the fearful Gideon. This shows us that we can have comfort knowing that even if you are weak, even if you are fearful, even if you are frustrated, doesn't mean that God can't use you for His kingdom. We may have things to work on. We may have to be constantly pursuing, I believe, I believe, I believe, when I feel like, oh, I, I don't believe enough. I don't have enough faith. But we're working on it. All the while, you can have comfort to know it's the power of God who can provide for us as we seek to advance Christ's kingdom through the church, at your jobs, in your homes, even on social media, wherever you are, He is with you. Now, I want to show you this verse in the Hebrews. So if we can flip over to Hebrews, if you have your Bible open, this, it, this is our faith plus weakness equals God's strength. This is it right here in Hebrews. The New Testament interprets it for us. Hebrews 11, 32 through 34. Here in Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 34, we'll start in verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. How did they conquer kingdoms? Through faith. Through faith they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Through faith, they who were once weak were made strong by God's hand. They became mighty in the use of God's kingdom. Christ takes uncertain and fearful folk he strengthens their hands in the oddest of ways, and He makes them able to stand for Him in school or home or work. That's a good quote for us to remember. You may be weak, but God 
is strong to save. And so God really does transform Gideon's weakness into strength through faith. Gideon and his servant Purah, they sneak up on the camp, the Midianite camp, and they hear two soldiers talking. And these soldiers are talking back and forth, and one says to the other, hey man, I had a dream. In my dream, there was like this big old loaf of bread that came tumbling into our camp. It hit the tent, knocked the camp, knocked the tent over, and the tent lays flat on the ground. His brother in arms looks at him and says, look in verse 14. He says, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. He says, this dream means that God must have given our camp to Gideon in the hands of the Israelites. Gideon hears that, and he knows it's time to go. God is with us. His weakness has been transformed into strength through faith. In the same way, God knows you. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. He's with you. He knows the encouragement that you need. He knows the strength that you need. He knows the times when you need it the most, and He's with you, and He will bring the victory. See, the principle at work here is the fact that success doesn't depend on the strength of your faith so much as it depends on the object of your faith. Success doesn't depend so much on the strength of your faith as it does the object of your faith. Tim Keller illustrates this by saying that strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. In other words, you're climbing a tree, you can have strong faith that this branch right here is going to hold me up. Well, if the branch itself is weak, it doesn't matter how much faith you have in it, you're going to fall out of the tree. (laughs) If your faith is in yourself, if it's in your strength, if it's in your resources, if it's in what you can do on your own, then by definition, your faith is weak. It's not going to hold up. But if your faith is in something, in someone who is infinitely strong and who has already won the victory, now your weak faith is not going to keep God from doing what He set out to do. His kingdom will come. He will be the strength that brings the victory. He will be the driving force that brings success. And so, in verse 15... Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, and he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel, and he tells the people exactly what they're going to do. Now we do have to include here at the very end, weakness and faith bring God's strength, but be careful. Gideon is a great warning for us how quickly our confident faith in God's strength can turn into weak faith. And ourselves. We see there at the end, Gideon says, I'm going to tell you all what to do. We're going to take our lanterns and we're going to circle the camp. We're going to split into groups of our units of 100. And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to yell. And when you yell, we'll all yell together. And Gideon tells the men, shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) I thought this whole thing was about how Gideon was fearful, but God was going to provide. Now we're fighting for the Lord and for Gideon. And you see that this this starts to spiral in the rest of the Gideon story. But remember this. Remember, we depend on our God. And that's a good thing. 
depend on our God and remain dependent on our God, even after we go out and we have those conversations with our coworkers and our family members and we share the gospel with the people that we care about, remember, we depend on our God who is with us. So brothers and sisters in Christ, know that you can make a difference. Not because of how strong you are, but because of who your faith is in. Put your faith in Christ and soon you will see that your weakness will only be used to highlight God's strength. You're free to be weak in strength, but strong in faith. You're free to lean on Him and His strength. In fact, that's exactly what it means to be a servant of Jesus. You do His work, trusting in His Spirit to bring success. The Lord gives you gifts. Church, the Lord gives us gifts. And He intends to use them. So let them be of good use to God. Let those gifts bring Him glory and honor as you confidently depend on Him, even in the midst of your own weakness. This hurting world needs the church right now. They need the church. You recall our friend Francis Grimke, the African-American Presbyterian minister? Well, he had ministered for 40-something years, and this was in, he said this in 1919. Now notice, this is 1919. World War I had just ended, so cities across the entire world had been absolutely destroyed. Millions of people had died. 1919, that's one year after the, Sp the Spanish flu pandemic. They, the, a group of people come to Francis Grimke and they say, what does the church need to do? How does the church need to address these issues that are happening in our world? And what he says is very applicable to our moment right now. What does the church need to do to address these issues that are going on in the world? This is what Grimke says. He says, I have nothing new to offer. Nothing better to offer than that what I have been offering for the last 40 years. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. The taking of Christ's yoke upon us and learning of Him. Denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following Him through evil rapport as well as good. Others may have something new, something better to offer, but I have not. And I have no disposition to seek for anything else. I have no desire to offer anything else. So far as the world has been saved, the gospel preached and lived is the only thing that has saved it. The only thing that has saved it. And it's the only thing that will continue to save it. Church, go out and proclaim the gospel in your words and in your deeds. God is with you. He intends to use you in His church. Have those hard conversations. Share the gospel. Invite people to church. Share the live stream, whatever it may be. Wherever the Lord leaves you, proclaim the gospel in word and deed. Be bold. Your God is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. The Holy Spirit is with you, living in you. Christ has won the victory. He's victorious. You will be victorious. The book of Matthew says the gates of hell cannot stand against the church. Romans 16.20 says the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Be bold. Sin and suffering, violence, oppression, and pain will be no more. Christ will come again. We will win. We will feast in the house of Zion. 
The promised morning will come. We will feast and we will weep no more because Christ has won the victory. And that is the message that we proclaim through word and deed at church, at home, at work, out in the, in the public, on social media. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love our God and we love our neighbors in the name of Jesus Christ. And that is what the world needs. The world needs the love of Christ, the hope of Christ, to know that we will feast in the house of our God, to know that all, all the evil and the bad things will be no more, to know that Christ will make things right, to know that Christ returns to bring justice, to know that violence and suffering and pain will be no more. And that's all bound up in the hope of the gospel. And so I say again, be bold, church. Be bold. Our God is with you. Our weakness is God's strength. And He intends to use us in the world. Let's pray. Father, we long for the day when Your Son will return to make all things new. But in the meantime, Lord, give us Your Holy Spirit to change our hearts, to give us strong faith, Allow us to remain steadfast in our faith in You. And we ask that You bless our faith, use our faith, advance Your kingdom through us and through our church. Father, we are weak, but You are strong to save. Use us however You see fit. And would You receive all the glory forever and ever and ever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.